Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 19th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. We'll begin with the um, story that's on everybody's mind is the weather. It's Wednesday, January 18, 2023 was one for the record books in Sioux City. The amount of snow that fell in Sioux City Metro from midnight to midnight more than doubled a previous single-day record set in 1975 and was the largest total the area has seen since 2018, according to the National Weather Service Sioux Falls office. With how it's dry it's been for the past couple of winters, this is one of the more significant snowfalls. National Weather Service Sioux Falls meteorologist Peter Rogers said, It's been five years since you have seen something of this magnitude. The official observation for the National Weather Service Sioux Falls has for Sioux City is 7.4 inches of snow, 6.2 inches on January 18th, and 1.2 more since midnight. Based on the most currently available reports, few places in Siouxland saw totals much larger than that. Rock Valley, Iowa had 8 inches as of 7 o'clock a.m. on Thursday morning. North Sioux City and Dakota City both reported 8 inches as well. A total of 8.2 inches was listed for Jackson, Nebraska through 4 o'clock in the morning, but snow was still falling at that time. To the southeast, snowfall amounts were less significant. Both Denison and Mapleton, Iowa reported figures of 6 inches. To the east and northeast of Sioux City, Hull and Pocahontas, Iowa, provided similar totals too, but only through the early morning. Right now, the Sioux City area is kind of the epicenter for the highest snow amounts, Rogers said. Aside from breaking meteorological, oh my, I can't say that word, uh, records, Wednesday's snowstorm forced waves of school cancellations for Siouxland. Both the Sioux City Community School District and Bishop Heelan Catholic Schools called classes off before 7 p.m. on Wednesday as snow was still falling fast and heavy. The South Sioux City Community School District made its Facebook announcement for no Thursday classes at 8.19 p.m. Sergeant Bluff Luton announced no school tomorrow, Warrior Nation, on Twitter around 8.21 p.m. And at 9.01 p.m., the Dakota Valley School District initially announced a two-hour late start before making it a full cancellation at 5.14 a.m. on Thursday. Woodbury Central shifted from a late start to a close at 9.25 p.m. Wednesday. West Monona's news of no school came to social media at 6.17 a.m. Thursday. And the MOC Floyd Valley Community School District posted to Facebook at 8.59 a.m. Thursday. No school Thursday, January 19th. Despite the major powder deposit, city offices in Sioux City remained open on Thursday. As for what the rest of Thursday will look like, Roger said anyone getting out can expect blustery northwest winds. Those winds will be strong enough to blow around snow, he said. Into next week, Roger said residents should expect temperatures to stay below freezing. I would not expect the snow that has fallen to disappear rapidly, so folks are definitely going to want to take that into consideration, Roger said. Efforts underway to publish Omaha tribal history. And this article is written by Nick Hytrek of the Sioux City Journal. Walltail, Nebraska. Dennis Hastings spent decades meticulously researching the history of his Omaha Indian people, amassing file cabinets full of documents, newspaper clippings, photos, and other information. 
Working with Marjorie Coffey, he organized all that knowledge into a doctoral dissertation that delves into five centuries of Omaha tribal history. The two also collaborated on nearly two dozen other books on Omaha language, culture, and more history. Now Coffey and Richard Shilton hope to make Hastings' dream of seeing all that work in print come true so it can be used to educate tribal members young and old. Hastings died in May at age 74. That's what he really wanted to have happen is to teach his people, said Coffey, who received her Ph.D. In, with Hastings for Grandfather Remembers, their 1,500-page dissertation. Working on behalf of the Omaha Tribal Historical Research Project, Coffey and Chilton are in the early stages of raising money to publish the 20 books that make up the Four Hills of Life, Umanhan Curriculum, a comprehensive history of the Omaha tribe that Hastings wanted made available to all tribal members. It is a way of giving it back to the people. They need to know it. They don't know it. It's been taken away from them, Coffee said in reference to the practice in the 1800s and 1900s of sending Indian children away to boarding schools to assimilate them into white American culture by, among other things, prohibiting them from speaking their native language or wearing tribal clothing. The curriculum covers multiple facets of Omaha culture and history, including a dictionary and workbook of the Omaha language, a cookbook, traditional tales, and songs. Also, an artist, Coffey designed the covers, publishing the books and making them available to all enrolled tribal members living on or off the Omaha Indian Reservation would help many Omahas learn about a past many don't know because it's not taught to them in school currently. The books would provide a foundation of tribal knowledge and history that all interested tribal members can use to educate themselves and their children. All use color and images throughout the text, a form of visual learning in tune with tribal teaching customs. There are people within the tribe trying to educate their children correctly, and these books would help them, Coffee said. They want to be what they are, and not what the white man insists that they be. A lover of tribal history, Hastings initially hoped to build a museum near the Missouri River, but that project never came to fruition. So he turned to a written history and curriculum that could be taught to tribal members. The books are the culmination of about 16 years of writing. Neither Coffey nor Chiltern are Native American, but the two spent years helping Hastings with his research. Both want to carry on his legacy for encouraging education and researching the tribe's history for the many stories yet to be told. He's the one that ultimately allowed us to do what we did out of his love for his people, Chilton said. We want them to be proud of their present and proud of their future. The search for a publisher has begun, and Coffey and Chilton are utilizing a network of friends and colleagues in search of funding the printing of the manuscripts. With up to 20,000 pages and the generous use of color, the pristine cost will run into the millions of dollars, Chilton said. A fundraising goal has yet to be set while they try to secure a publisher. It is still in the early process, Coffey said, and it's never too early to learn about one's past. For more information about this um, and the effort to publish it, you can contact the Omaha Tribal Historical Research Project at P.O. Box 279 in Rosalie, Nebraska, 68055. Nine Individuals Interested in Woodbury County Board Seat. And this article is written by Kate Nanyamada of the Sioux City Journal. Nine individuals have submitted applications for the open Woodbury County Board of Supervisors seat. Applications for the 
vacant District 3 seat were due by 4 p.m. Wednesday. The applicants are Jeanette Beekman of Pearson, Chad Benson of Lawton, Charles H. Clark of Lawton, John F. Crick of Mobile, Nathan Heilman of Correctionville, Willard Bryan McNaughton of Lawton, Mark Nelson of Correctionville, Barbara Soliniker of Sioux City, and Todd Wick of Lawton. The vacant seat was previously held by Rocky DeWitt, who resigned after being elected to the Iowa Senate. Nathan Heilman and Willard Bryan McNaughton ran with DeWitt and four others for the seat in 2016. The applicants will have an opportunity for public interviews at 9 a.m. Monday in the courthouse basement boardroom. The decision on the appointment will be announced at 8.30 a.m. Thursday, Tuesday in the boardroom. A committee made up of Treasurer Tina Bertrand, County Attorney James Loomis, and Auditor Pat Gill are in charge of the appointment process and will conduct the interviews. Each applicant will receive five minutes of presentation with committee questions to follow for an approximate total of 20 minutes per applicant. No particular order will be set for the interviews. Instead, names will be drawn randomly for fairness, Loomis said previously. The order will be announced at the beginning of the interviews. If an applicant is not available that day, their application will still be considered for appointment. The 14-day window for voters to submit a petition to fill the seat through a special election started on January 11th. If that deadline is not met and voters do not approve of the individuals who is chosen, a petition for a special election can be made within 14 days of the appointment. The petition must be signed by at least 10% of the voters' votes cast in the last general election, which would be in at least 2,882, Gill said previously. All voters in Woodbury County can vote for all seats on the board, not just the district they live in. Gill said a special election would cost around $40,000. State Seeking Death Penalty Against Man Charged in Laurel Slains Hardington, Nebraska Prosecutors have filed notice that they plan to seek a death sentence for the man charged with killing four people in Laurel, Nebraska. Assistant Nebraska Attorney General Corey O'Brien on Tuesday filed an information containing four counts each of first-degree murder and use of a firearm to commit a felony and two counts of first-degree arson against Jason Jones. On each of the murder charges, O'Brien included a notice of aggravators or statutorily defined aggravating circumstances as required by Nebraska law in cases in which the death penalty is sought. The aggravating circumstances O'Brien will seek to prove at trial are that Jones committed a homicide at the same time he committed other homicides. On two of the murder charges, Jones is accused of committing a homicide to conceal the commission of a crime or burglary or murder, or to conceal his identity. Jones, 42, of Laurel, is charged with the August 4th shooting deaths of Michelle Averling, 53, in her home, and Jean Twyford, 86, his wife Janet Twyford, 85, and their daughter Dana Twyford, 55, in another home. He is accused of setting both houses on fire. He is scheduled to be arraigned Monday in Cedar County District Court, but his attorney, Todd Lancaster, on Wednesday, filed a waiver of appearance in which he advised the court Jones would not be entering a plea at that time because he plans to file a motion to quash sections of Nebraska's death penalty statute as unconstitutional. Jones is being held without bond at the Nebraska Department of Corrections Reception and Treatment Center in Lincoln, where he continues to receive treatment for burns received in the incidents. If found guilty of first-degree murder at trial, a jury or three-judge panel would consider the aggravating circumstances filed with the 
charges. If those circumstances are found to exist, the case would advance to a three-judge panel to determine if Jones would receive a death sentence. If found guilty of first-degree murder but not given a death sentence, Jones would be subject to a sentence of life in prison without parole. Authorities responded to a reported explosion in the early morning hours of August 4th at 209 Elm Street, where they found Aberling's body with two gunshot wounds. A second fire at the Twyford home at 503 Elm Street is believed to have started at about the same time, and responders found the bodies of the three family members, all with gunshot wounds. Jones's wife, Carrie Jones, was arrested in December and charged with first-degree murder, tampering with physical evidence, and being accessory to a felony. She is scheduled to be arraigned Monday. Carrie Jones, 43, is accused of killing Jean Twyford, concealing or removing physical evidence and hiding her husband in an effort to prevent his arrest. Jason Jones, who lived across with his wife across the street for Aberling, was arrested without incident at their home about 24 hours after the bodies were discovered and airlifted to a Lincoln hospital for treatment of serious burns over a large portion of his body. Investigators believe the Twyfords were killed first, then Aberling a short time later. According to court documents, authorities found receipts Jones had for gas at Aberling's home and a Ruger pistol traced to Jones at the Twyford residence. Search warrants affidavits filed in her husband's case show Carrie Jones was seen at Aberling's home shortly after the explosion was reported, and she told police during an interview she had been there early that morning. We'll now move to um, legislature news throughout the uh, tri-state area. We'll begin with Iowa. Iowa House lawmakers again seek to ban gay panic defense in Iowa. Iowa House lawmakers for a third time have moved forward legislation that would prevent a defendant from using a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity as a mitigating factor if charged with a violent crime or assault. The legal strategy asks a jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity expression is to blame for a defendant's violent reaction, including murder. The so-called gay panic defense has been used successfully in other states. Keenan Crow of One Iowa told a subcommittee that voted unanimously Wednesday to move the bill to the full House Judiciary Committee. Subcommittee member and freshman Representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat from Cedar Rapids, said he was shocked to learn such a defense could be used in legal proceedings and voted to advance the bill. Perpetrators who use the legal strategy claim a defense of diminished capacity. They argue that learning another person's sexual orientation or gender identity in a nonviolent sexual advance or come on from an LGBTQ plus person led to a loss of self-control and the subsequent assault. What this bill aims to do is not excuse these assaults or murders simply because their victim is an LGBTQ person, Crow told the subcommittee of House lawmakers. Damian Thompson, Director of Public Policy and Communication for Iowa Safe Schools, cited the 2016 killing of Kadari Johnson, a gender-fluid Burlington teenager who was shot twice, his head covered by a plastic bag, and another shoved down his throat. Thompson's buddy, body doused with bleach by a man who intended to have sex with a 16-year-old who often presented as female and was dressed in women's clothing on the night of his death. The fact the panic defense is even legal in the code is a bit of an insult to the LGBTQ community here in Iowa, Thompson said, and it kind of dishonors the memory of students like Kandari Johnson.
The legislation was approved unanimously by the House in 2020, but the legislature su suspended its session a week later because of the coronavirus pandemic. Lawmakers again unanimously approved the bill in 2021, but it was never taken up by the Senate. I find the use of this defense to be preposterous and heinous, said Representative Bobby Kaufman, Republican of Wilton, who again is managing the bill. It does not pass the common sense test. This should not be a defense for anybody. Kaufman said he expects the bill will again pass the House unanimously, but he said he could not speak for why senators did not consider the bill in previous sessions. I'm just hopeful that our persistence pays off, he told reporters. I stand ready to answer any questions that may be needed to get this down to the governor's desk. Kaufman added he's found quite a bit of support for the bill in the Senate and is optimistic it will be signed into law this year. Senate Judiciary Chairman Brad Zahn, Republican of Urbandale, and the Senate Republican leadership did not immediately respond Wednesday afternoon to a request for comment on the bill. The move, though, comes at the same time Republicans are pushing forward legislation that would prohibit teaching about gender identity and sexual orientation in certain grades, and it would prohibit schools from taking steps from affirming or recognizing a student's preferred gender identity in school without written consent from their parents. This bill and those bills couldn't possibly be more different, Kaufman said, responding to a reporter's question. So, in dealing with each bill in a vacuum, and this bill is simply the right thing to do. Now, moving to Nebraska. The senator who led the successful ballot initiative to require voter identification in Nebraska introduced a bill Tuesday to carry out the requirement. Legislative Bill 535 spells out acceptable types of identification, requirements for providing ID with mail-in ballots, and the process for handling cases where voters show up at the polls without ID. The measure also requires the Secretary of State to undertake a voter education effort and provides for free state ID cards and birth certificates for the people lacking an acceptable ID. State Senator Julie Slama of Dunbar introduced the bill, which promptly drew criticism from the ACLU of Nebraska as creating unreasonable barriers to the ballot. Slama sponsored the initiative petition drive that put a proposed constitutional amendment on the November ballot, then led the campaign for its successful passage. The measure requires voters to present valid photographic ID before casting a ballot in any election. LB 535 would define valid photographic IDs as documents issued by the state of Nebraska, the federal government, or Native American tribes that meet certain standards. Among those standards, the name on the ID would have to conform to the name on a person's voter registration. Except for military, voter, veteran, or tribal IDs, the documents would have to have expiration dates and not have expired before the last general election. The documents would either have to have a photo of the person or affidavit stating that the person has a religious objection to being photographed. Under the bill, people voting by mail would have to provide their driver's license or state ID number or a copy of another acceptable ID when requesting a ballot, and when returning it, People voting in person, including those voting early at an election office, would have to show their ID. Anyone who showed up to vote without an ID could vote provisionally, but their vote would only be counted if they provided an acceptable ID to the county election office by the Tuesday following the election. Under LB 535, the Department of Motor Vehicles would provide a free state ID to anyone without a Nebraska driver's license who needs an ID for voting. The bill also would provide a free birth certificate to people who need one to get an ID for voting. The measure is among 163 bills introduced on the next to last day of bill introductions. 
among others, abortion. Senator Joni Albrecht of Thurston, along with 28 other state senators, introduced her anticipated abortion bill, LB-626, which would ban all abortions after embryonic cardiac activity can be detected, which typically happens around six weeks past fertilization. Physicians could lose their medical license if they perform abortions beyond this point. The legislation has received harsh criticism from opponents since Albrecht announced it last week. The most common criticism is that most women don't realize they are preg pregnant until after the legislation would ban an abortion. Senator Megan Hunt of Omaha, who led the opposition against Albrecht's previous attempt to ban all abortions last year, introduced LB 488 on Tuesday, which would require state hospitals provide sexual assault survivors with medically and factually accurate information about emergency contraception. LB 626 includes an exception for victims of sexual assault. And for education, LB 475, introduced by Senator Justin Wayne of Omaha, would eliminate the state's current school funding formula and replace it with a Nebraska education formula. The new formula would allocate funding based on district enrollment with additional provisions in place for low-income students and students with limited English proficiency. The bill runs counter to several measures Governor Jim Pellin just pledged to support to Tuesday morning. Pillin's bills would maintain the current funding formula, but would add $1,500 in foundational aid for every student, establish a $1 billion education future fund that would grow up to $2.5 billion, and limit school districts from increasing their revenue beyond 3% per year. Another bill introduced by Senator Jen Day of Omaha, LB558, would require that all public school employees be paid at least 70% of the statewide average hourly wage. Senator Lynn Walls of Fremont also introduced a bill, LB581, which would give immunity to school employees that use Naloxone, a life-saving medication that can reverse an opioid overdose. Marijuana. Medical marijuana would be legalized under LB 588, introduced by Senator Anna Wishalt of Lincoln. The user must be using the drug to treat a specific ailment listed in the bill. Wishart previously vowed to bring the legislation after a petition she led last year to legalize medical marijuana failed to get enough signatures to make it on the ballot. Streetcars. LB 477 would introduced by Wayne, would allocate $100 million to the Omaha Streetcar Authority for the long-awaited Omaha Streetcar, with the condition that half the funding be used for establishing a streetcar line through North Omaha. Wayne, a proponent of public transportation, is also leading an effort to devote roughly $335 million to economic recovery efforts in underserved area, primarily in North and South Omaha. Red Flag LB 482, introduced by Senator Jane Raybould of Lincoln, would allow law enforcement to seek a suicide risk protection order from the courts in cases where a person poses a significant risk of injuring themselves or others. The orders would bar the person from having any firearms. Raybould said the measure was modeled after a so-called red flag proposal offered by former Senator Adam Moorfield of Lincoln. Restrictive housing. Nebraska inmates would not be placed in restrictive housing for more than 15 consecutive days under LB 557, introduced by Senator Tony Vargas of Omaha. Restrictive housing is considered confinement where inmates have limited contact with other offenders and have controlled movement out of their cell under limited out-of-cell time. Solitary confinement is already not allowed under state law. Lottery tickets. Lottery tickets could be purchased through vending machines under LB 493, introduced by Senator George Dugan of Lincoln. And self-driving cars. 
LB625 would mandate that operating self-driving cars be occupied by someone with a valid operator's license who has the ability to monitor the car's performance and operate the vehicle if necessary. Senator Mike McDonnell of Omaha introduced the bill. And now for South Dakota. State lawmakers are considering an number of tax cuts this year, including Governor Kristi Noem's campaign promise to repeal this grocery tax. The only problem is deciding on which ones. Republican lawmakers are proposing alternative tax cut schemes, such as scaling back the sales tax and property tax. Other lawmakers also say the state has a long list of programs to fund this year, leaving little room in the surplus for tax cuts. Although Democrats have proposed grocery tax cuts for years, they gained a powerful bipartisan ally when Noam made it a key part of her re-election campaign. Noam, who is considering a 2024 White House bid, has trumpeted the proposal as the largest tax cut in South Dakota history. Noam says cutting the tax, which brings in more than $100 million annually, would help households' budgets squeezed by inflation. They need relief, and we can afford to give it to them, the Republican governor said in a statement. Advocates for ruling the grocery, repealing the grocery sales tax says it weighs heaviest on low-income people who spend a larger percentage of their income on food. Only 13 states levy taxes on grocery, and ta South Dakota is just one of three that taxes groceries at the rate of other sales, according to the Tax Foundation, a pro-industry think tank. But many of the governor's fellow Republicans have been resistant. House Speaker Hugh Bartels said that when he discussed the grocery tax repeal with the governor's staff, his message has been that constituents are not calling for it. I'm waiting until the budgeting process is done, he said, adding, you've got to weigh the option of unfunded programs and tax cuts. For people like Fred Steffen, who traveled to the Capitol on Wednesday to tell lawmakers of shortfalls in the state's program to provide home health aids to disabled adults such as his son, it made little sense to discuss tax cuts when it appears government programs lack necessary funding. If they are talking about cutting the food tax, there's a place in there that could benefit the disabled population, he said. Peer resident Barry Sargent said he generally supports tax cuts but fears they could cut into essential government services if not well planned. I don't think anybody's against paying taxes as long as they're used for stuff that they can see, that benefits people or pays for schools or pays for roads, he said. Republican State Rep Representative Chris Carr, who has pushed for a reduction in the state's sales tax, pointed to the state's $310 million in ongoing revenue growth and argued that the state could afford to fund programs and cut taxes. Those dollars belong to the people, he said. But a recent report from the state's legislative research office shows that South Dakota's revenue growth has been driven by inflation and federal stimulus funds rather than organic economic growth. State Senator Reynold Nisiba, the state's Democrat leader, suggested the competing proposals and pressing needs could result in an incremental tax cut, such as reducing rather than repealing the tax on groceries. He said, I think there's a way forward to compromise. We'll now move to the editorial page and the opinion page, and we have a piece from um, North Platte Telegraph um, uh, opinion piece. The first temporary casinos are open at two Nebraska horse tracks under the voter-approved 2020 initiatives allowing them if they're part of a racino, and that's spelled R-A-C-I-N-O. Now that they are, some western Nebraskans don't want to wait two years or more to rake in dough themselves. Before allowing more horse track casino combinations, state senators in 2022 mandated market and socioeconomic studies of the racinos planned or underway at Nebraska's six existing tracks, including 
AtoCAD in South Sioux City. Legislative Bill 876 effectively put off adding more, including in Norfolk, North Platte, Ogala, and or Gehring, until at least the 2025 deadline for those studies. Senator Mike Jacobson and others think that's unfair, citing majority Lincoln County support for Racinos in 2020, and despite his own personal no vote then, Jacobson introduced LB 148 last week to let the Nebraska Racing and Gaming Commission approve Racinos west of the 100th Meridian anyway. With Grand Island's temporary casino bound to attract locals, he said, it's only fair to let North Platte get its cut of gambling taxes sooner to cope with gambling social costs. And, of course, collect its economic benefits. There's no stopping the galloping homestretch of the forces that kept working to break down Nebraska's opposition to casinos and finally achieve their goal. But we hear that government should be run like a business about as often as we hear the voters have spoken on this or that matter in public affairs. Let's do so this time. Like Senator Jacobson, the Telegraph opposed the 2020 Racino Initiatives. <clears throat> Our October 25th editorial before that election coupled warnings about the inevitable social costs with a healthy dose of doubt that the whole affair was really about growing horse racing in Nebraska. Let's consider each side of the coin, the horse track side and the casino side. And remember that not one, but two West Central Nebraska cities, North Platte and Agalala, want the action. First, the obvious. Horse racing with Paramutual betting has never existed in this state west of Grand Island and Hastings. The only Fauner Park ha and only Fauner Park has a race meet of any length these days. Can enough horses be raised? Owners found and fans attracted to support two tracks just 50 miles apart in Nebraska's most sparsely populated area. We don't think so. We agree with Senator Jack Jacobson. Either North Platte or Agalala will get a track, not both. We also doubt the Panhandle can support more than one at most. So it doesn't make business sense to let the required studies play out, if growing horse racing is the point, to confirm which city has the better case. That said, we've never believed this was about horse racing. Iowa years ago authorized gambling on riverboats, then eventually dropped the pretense and let their operators dock the boats and just do land-based casinos. No, this is about joining the other states that don't want Las Vegas and Atlantic City to get all the gambling bucks. But we are not in Omaha, Lincoln, or even the Grand Island Hastings Kearney area, which itself has more people in a small region than one, our part of the state. From a statewide perspective, ought not solid, impartial evidence be collected before the Racing and Gaming Commission makes what we see as an inevitable choice between North Platte and Agalala. With due respect to the would-be proprietors of each, either city's racino, running government like a business means one doesn't take every suitor's proposal or feasibility study at face value. One ought to do some independent research first, the supposed purpose of the study senators ordered a year ago. Believe us, we are not siding with the existing horse tracks here. There is no question that they accompanied their push for a moratorium on new racinos with crocodile tears, but they didn't think the 2020 voter initiatives would trigger proposals for more. We simply believe, in the case of West Platte and our close neighbors to the west, with Nebraska's largest outdoor tourist attraction in Lake Macaulay, that it makes sense to let LB 876 statewide studies be done first. We don't want to see either city use a prime Interstate 80 frontage and then wind up with abandoned facilities in a few years. And the delay would give residents of both cities more time to decide if what statewide voters decided is best for Nebraska is actually best for them.
And again, this was an opinion piece from North Platte. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, no, Thursday, I'm sorry. It's for Thursday, January 19th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to today's obituaries. Anne Bradham Jackson, 71, of Spirit Lake, passed away on Thursday, January 12th. Celebration of Life service will be held at 12.30 p.m. on Saturday at Good News Community Church in Okoboji. Visitation will be from 4.30 to 6.30 on Friday at Good News Community Church in Okoboji. Turner Jensen Funeral Home in Spirit Lake is in charge of the arrangements. Anne Frances Bradham Jackson, daughter of Leo and Franny Gerard, was born February 22, 1951 in Sioux City. Anne was one of ten kids who was a spitfire of a redhead that gave her parents many a gray hair. Anne grew up and lived in Sioux City where she eventually met the love of her life, Larry Jackson. They then moved to Spirit Lake in 1992 where they wed in 1994 at Gull Point State Park. Anne worked for Coca-Cola for many years, as well as at Spirit Lake High School, but her passion was and will forever be cooking. She pursued her passion into a cooking show on local TV, chef for local restaurants, and catering countless events. Larry was her ultimate taste tester of her new creations. Anne was a staple within her church community at Good News Community Church, serving as a chaplain and countless Sunday school teachings. One regret she had is that she didn't accept and have a better connection with Jesus sooner in life. Anne enjoyed many things in life, from trips with Larry, making art projects, bike rides, exploring nature, and especially Cousins Weekends. She absolutely adored and loved her grandkids. Anne had a knack for making everyone feel special and taking the time to know and relate to everyone, be it making one of her amazing cakes for her birthday or just taking the time to sit down and have a cup of coffee. Anne fought a long, hard battle over the last eight years with grace, strength, and dignity, which unfortunately for those who will forever miss her came to an end. We know that she is happy in the arms of Larry while our Lord keeps them in this, his house to watch over us. Neva J. Bean, 83, of Salex, passed away Sunday, January 15th, at a local hospital. Celebration of Life Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday at Community Church of Christ in Sloan. Burial will follow at City of Onawa Cemetery. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Monday, with a prayer service at 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Neva was born on January 7, 1940, in Craig, Iowa, to Clayton and Hazel Newman. She grew up in the Craig and Haywarden area and graduated from Haywarden High School. After high school, she moved to Sioux City. On April 27, 1963, she married Robert T. Bean in Sioux City, and to this union, three children were born. The two shared 51 years of marriage, and Robert passed away in February of 2015. The couple lived in Sioux City until 1979. From there, they moved to Salex and had, has been their home ever since. Neva worked in a variety of industries in the Siouxland area, including Zenith, Subi Honey, Century 21, and the Woodbury County Sheriff's Department, where she worked for over 20 years until her retirement. She also worked part-time for Skeen Lutheran Church in Sloan, and then First Unitarian Church in Sioux City for many years. Her greatest job, however, was her role as mother and grandmother. In her younger years, Neva enjoyed bowling. She picked up crocheting, quilting, and sewing from her mother, and after her mother's passing, she continued the work for many years. She made baby blankets for each new family member and donated beanies to the 
ICU department at St. Luke's for many years. She also donated apples from her apple tree and clothing to a homeless shelter in Council Bluffs each year. She loved playing bingo with her friends Marge and Larry and always enjoyed going to the Wednesday or Thursday night buffet at Winnevegas Casino with her sisters and brothers-in-law and her son Chuck. She loved her annual trips to Las Vegas to visit her son Tom and cherished the time she spent with her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. She was dedicated to honoring her family and decorated family members' headstones each year for Memorial Day. She would also bake for each family holiday, always remembering to bake extra pumpkin and banana bread. Richard W. Spike Jonke, 60, Sioux City, 59, died Monday, January 16th. Services will be January 22nd at 1 p.m. at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Sioux City. Arrangements with the Gosser Funeral Home and Monuments, Ottawa, Iowa. Recording of service available at the Funerals Home website. Dan Alonz, Sanborn, Iowa, 98, died Monday, January 16th. Services will be January 21st at 11 a.m. at Cornerstone United Reformed Church, Sanborn. Burial will be January 21st at 10 a.m. Roseland Cemetery. Visitation will be from January 20th from 3 to 7.30 p.m. at the church. Arrangements with Sanborn Funeral Home. Paul M. Miller, Sioux City, 83, died Friday, January 13th. Services will be January 20th at 10.30 a.m. at the Holy Cross Parish St. Michael Church. Burial will be at Calvary Cemetery, Sioux City. Visitation will be January 19th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Julie E. Jandro, Lawton, Iowa, 76, died Tuesday, January 17th. Services will be January 21st at 1.30 p.m. at the Community Presbyterian Church in Lawton. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the church. Arrangements with Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Jacqueline Heckathorn, Elk Point, South Dakota, 76, died Tuesday, January 17th. Services will be January 21 at 10 a.m. at the Hillside Community Church in Vermilion, South Dakota. Burial will be at the Elk Point Cemetery, Elk Point. Visitation will be January 20th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the church. Arrangements with Cobra Funeral Home of Elk Point. Barbara Ann Donahue, Arlington, Texas, formerly of Remsen, Iowa, 56, died Friday, January 13th. Services will be January 20th at 10.30 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Remsen. Burial will be following services at St. Mary's Cemetery, Remsen. Visitation will be January 19th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Fish Funeral Home and Monument in Remsen and resumes January 20th from 9.30 a.m. at the funeral home. And that uh, concludes on the obituaries. We'll now move to the sports section. The headline is Sioux City East Boys Withstand Healing Rally to Remain Unbeaten. Deploying a balanced scoring attack, the Sioux City East boys withstood a second-half Bishop Heelan rally to remain unbeaten with a 66-60 win in a battle of state-ranked crosstown rivals Tuesday night. The Black Raiders jumped out to a 15-10 lead after the first quarter and increased the margin to 37-25 at halftime. There was a little stretch in the first half that we didn't play very well, Heelan coach. Uh, Matt Hahn said. Obviously, that was the difference in the end. If we had played the way we did in the second half, it could have been a different outcome. After intermission, the Crusaders rallied to cut the advantage to 49-41 at the end of three periods. Heelan cut the lead to two late in the fourth quarter, but East hit some key free throws down the stretch to seal the win. 
In the first half, I thought we played great, East coach uh, Ras Vanderloo said. We did a lot of good things at both ends. We made baskets and we defended well, and we played physical and we hustled. We started out a little sloppy in the third quarter. We didn't take care of the ball and turned it over a few times. Then we settled down and played better. Vanderloo said his team missed too many free throws in the second half. The Black Raiders finished the game 12-21 for just 57%. Helan was a perfect 9 of 9 from the charity stripe. Junior guard Fritzy Grant's 13 points led five East players in double-figure scoring. Senior forward Brant Van Dyke with 12, senior forward Preston Dobbs and senior guard Sam Johns, 11 each, and senior forward Cole Ritchie, 10. A.J. Flymaster added nine points. Having six players score nine points or more was incredible, Vanderloo said. When you can be that balanced, you can't centralize on one guy or even two, he said. You have to guard them all. East was 23 of 51 from the field, or 52.8%, including 8 of 23, or 34% from behind the three-point line. Helan shot 44%, making 21 of 58 shots, including 9 of 24 three-point attempts, or 37.5%. After missing the last two games due to an upper body injury, Matt Knoll returned to Helan's lineup to lead Helan with 20 points. The six-foot-eight junior also pulled down 14 rebounds. Noel, the Crusaders' leading scorer and rebounder, has been attracting interest from NAIA and NCAA Division II schools, and even some looks from NCAA Division I programs, Han said. I think anybody who gets him at the next level is going to get a steal, the first-year Crusaders coach said. He works hard, and he does a lot of really good things that we really didn't notice until he sat out. When things are getting hard and we need a basket, it's nice to go to Matt and know something positive is going to come out of it. Senior Carter Cool added 15 points, and Senior Sam Skiller had 14 points for the Crusaders, ranked number, well, they left out the number, in Iowa Class 3A. East improves it to 13.0 overall and 8-0 in the Missouri River Conference. Two full games behind second place teams Sergeant Bluff Luton and Council Bluff's Abraham Lincoln. The Blackgators are off to their best start since the 2012-2013 team began the season 20-0 under Vanderloo. Helan falls to 9-3 overall and 4-3 in the conference. East, which beat Helan on the road in the first game of the season, 70-58, swept the season's series with the Crusaders. Now a story on Iowa, Iowa's basketball. 30 years later, Street's Hawkeye legacy lives. It was 30 years ago Thursday when the Iowa's basketball program endured its most difficult loss ever. The traffic accident that claimed the life of Hawkeye forward Chris Street changed lives in the blink of an eye on that January night. Street had left a team dinner at the Highlander Inn on the north side of Iowa City when the Chrysler LeBaron he was driving pulled out in front of a snowplow which was outfitted with elevated lights in anticipation of an approaching winter storm. Street had stopped at the intersection before pulling into the path of the snowplow which struck the side of his car and rolled it into the path of an oncoming vehicle. Iowa City Police reported Street was killed instantly and passenger Kim Venton, Street's girlfriend since their sophomore year at Indianola High School, suffered a separated shoulder, punctured lung, and broken ribs in the accident. Family members, friends, teammates, and coaches and fans all felt the impact of the loss of a player known for his wide smile and intense approach to the game. 
Just like that, three days after 13th ranked Iowa basketball team had battled two-time defending national champion Duke to a nine-point game at Cameron Indoor Stadium, Street was gone. His legacy, however, remains very much alive today. And the author was asked during an interview with a Des Moines radio station on Wednesday why memories of Street remain so vivid and relevant 30 years after the tragic accident that claimed his life. The answer was easy. Street was a quintessential Iowa boy. He grew up in small-town Indianola, a few miles south of Des Moines, competing in sports with his buddies, enjoying the competition and camaraderie that accompanies being part of a team. He was an all-state quarterback in football and dominated on the mound as a pitcher in addition to enjoying the success he had in basketball. As his father Mike recalled a decade ago, all he wanted to be was a Hawkeye. In an era before social media, cell phones, and chat rooms, Street followed his favorite team when it played on TV, listened to games on the radio, and read about it in the newspaper. As interested as Street was in Iowa, Iowa was equally interested in Street, and he committed to become part of Tom Davis's program prior to his junior year at Indianola High School, somewhat of a rarity at the time. With his endless energy and intense approach to the game, Street quickly became a fan favorite. He led the team in rebounds per game and field goal percentage during the 1991-92 season. His 247 rebounds that year remained the second most by a Hawkeye sophomore. Street had been named the most valuable player at the San Juan shootout and averaged 14.5 points and 9.5 rebounds in the 15 games he played as a junior. He continues to hold the Iowa school record for consecutive free throws made, hitting 34 straight over a span of six games from January 2nd to January 16th in 1993 to break a 24-year-old school record. Former Hawkeye Jordan Bohannon tied that mark over 15 games from January 1st to February 25, 2018, before intentionally missing an attempt to keep Street's name in the Hawkeye record book. It's that kind of respect players today continue to have for Street, whose jersey and photo hang outside the entrance to the Iowa locker room at Carver Hawkeye Arena. Annually, Iowa presents the Chris Street Award to a Hawkeye player who best exemplifies the spirit, enthusiasm, and intensity of Chris Street. The award was first presented to Wade Looking Bell in 1993, and last season was shared by Connor McCaffrey and Keegan Murray. Current Hawkeye scoring and rebounding leader Chris Murray was named after Street, his father Kenyon, a teammate during the 92-93 season. Iowa planned to remember Street's life and legacy at Wednesday's postponed game against Northwestern, just hours before a Big Ten Network documentary on Street made its debut. The network, which was going to televise the Iowa-Northwestern game, followed the documentary debut with a replay of the Iowa-Michigan game from 1993, the Hawkeyes' first home game following the accident. The team had returned to competition 12 days after the accident, rattling from a double-digit deficit to earn an emotion-filled overtime victory at Michigan State. Davis's team went on to finish the season with a 23-9 record, losing to Wake Forest in the second round of the NCAA tournament, but things were never the same. As teammate A.C. Earl put it as they looked back 10 years ago, the innocence was gone. We grew up that night. We didn't have our voice. And now we'll do some high school uh, scores. Uh, first is boys basketball. SBL boys outdistance Lamar's. 
Dylan Chop scored 13 points to lead the Sergeant Bluff Luton boys to a 40-23 win over Lamar's Tuesday night. Scott Kroll added 8 points and 7 rebounds for the Warriors. We improved to 8-4 overall and 6-2 in the Missouri River Conference, tied for second place with Council Bluff's Abraham Lincoln. Nolan Cass, 6 points, topped the scoring for the Bulldogs, who fell to 2-9 overall and 2-6 in the conference. And then other scores. Council Bluff's Abraham Lincoln 69, Sioux City North 55, Western Christian 71, Unity Christian 59, Winnebago 51, Ponca 43, Remsen St. Mary 70, Trinity Christian 31, Elk Point Jefferson 69, Vermilion 49, Ridgeview 71, Siouxland Christian 32, Kingsley Pearson 69, River Valley 35, Laurel Concord Coleridge 51, Harlington Newcastle 26, OABCIG 82, Westwood 79, MMCRU 54, Akron Westfield 51, South O'Brien 69, Hartley Melvin Sanborn 61, Central Lions 79, Sheldon 33, Sioux Center 54, Rock Valley 48, George Little Rock 60, Sibley O'Shaden 30, West Lion 86, Okaboji 42. And now for girls basketball, SBL girls knock off Lamar's. Senior Peyton Hardy recorded a double-double with 13 points and 12 rebounds to help lead the Sergeant Bluff Luton girls past Lamar's 44-36 Tuesday night. Peyton Schirmerhorn added 12 points for the Warriors who moved to 4-4 in the Missouri River Conference and 5-7 overall. Lamar's led 15-10 at the end of the first quarter, but SBL cut the deficit to 23-22 at halftime. The Warriors outscored the Bulldogs 14-4 in the decisive third quarter. Sarah Brown scored 12 points and Meniscoff added 11 for the Bulldogs, who fell to 5-2 in the conference and 7-6 overall. And then other scores. South Sioux City 62, Omaha Mercy 33. Unity Christian 79, Western Christian 50. Vermilion 47, Elk Point Jefferson 46. Westwood 52, OABCIG 28, Ponca 59, Winnebago 12, Laura Concord Coleridge 42, Hartington Newcastle 37, Akron Westfield 60, MMCRU 48, Kingsley Pearson 50, River Valley 33, West Sioux 56, Harris Lake Park 37, MVAOUCOU 61, Lawton Bronson 47, Sioux Center 65, Rock Valley 28, Ridgeview 66, Siouxland Christian 13, MOC Floyd Valley 63, Boyden Hall 31, Hartley Melvin Sanborn 50, South O'Brien 21, Central Lions 72, Sheldon 27, Spencer 67, Cherokee 36. We'll now move to Dear Abby, our first letter. The last two years have been especially tough. I went through a breakup after a four-year relationship. My dog developed cancer and I had to put her to sleep, and I caught COVID and have been dealing with long-haul symptoms ever since. My energy is low because of it. Plus, I've been depressed with all the events that have happened. I have two best friends I've known since I was 16. I'm 34 now. I thought they would be there for me through anything. We were close until recently. They no longer invite me to get-togethers, and they hang out and exclude me. I try to stay in contact, but when I talk with them, it doesn't progress from small talk. The few times I have seen them, I stayed positive and didn't discuss my problems. 
They have children, and I'm single and childless, which may have caused a divide between us. Being excluded hurts. When I mention it, they say, you don't have kids. I didn't think you'd want to come. It feels like a slap in the face. I need my friends more than ever right now because I feel very alone through one of the toughest times of my life. How do I mend these friendships? Am I unreasonable for being upset? Signed, Disappointed Friend in Virginia. And Abby's response. Discuss your feelings with your friends. They may not be trying to isolate you intentionally. You are in a very different phase of your life right now. They may sincerely believe that being invited to kids' parties would bore you, as would their constant chatter about what their precious little ones are doing and saying. This may seem like blasphemy, but more than a few childless adults feel that way. If you explain that you need their emotional support after everything you have been through, you may step forward. Recognize that your friends with kids are a package deal. If you bond with their kids, it might bring you closer. However, if that doesn't happen, you will have to summon the energy to find new friends whose lives better align with yours. Dear Abby, I bought my roommate the most beautiful pair of earrings for her birthday. It has been more than a month and she still hasn't worn them, not even when I once suggested it, although she has frequently worn a second pair of earrings I previously bought her. I don't have pierced ears, but the earrings in question could be made into an adorable necklace. I think if she doesn't want them, it would be nice for me to get them back since they were expensive and I like them so much myself. How can I politely ask if she plans on ever wearing them, and if not, if I can have them back? Or would it work better if I suggest that we each get one earring made into a necklace so that we could match? Signed, Bejeweled in North Carolina. And the response. Ask your roommate to tell you honestly if she likes the earrings you gave her. Tell her that if she doesn't, you do like them very much and would be glad to gift her something else of her choosing. Then, suggest that she might return the earrings to you so you could use them to make matching necklaces. I don't think it would be rude, and neither should she. And then the next letter. Recently, my partner and I got engaged. We are both women. My parents will not attend our wedding for religious reasons. If it was just us paying for the wedding, we'd be going to City Hall and a bar afterward with friends. I'm a grad student. My parents, partner's parents are willing to foot the bill. I'm wondering who I can and should invite. I have a large out-of-town family who, unlike my parents, are supportive. I'm self-conscious about putting people on my in-laws tabs while my parents are not participating. I want to express gratitude for their generosity, but expressing any preferences in planning feels bratty. I know I'm running the risk of looking uninterested. I'd rather avoid it all, but don't want my partner or her family to suffer from my parents' absence and their refusal to contribute. Can you offer some direction? Signed, Bewildered Bride. And the response. I advocate for couples to finance their own weddings. This involves both parties fully participating to raise the money for the wedding and reception. Couples sometimes do this by going to family members. In traditional weddings, the bride's parents are expected to pay for the wedding reception, and so you could see this offer as having hewing to a traditional practice. What's missing here is your participation. Your embarrassment regarding your parents' rejection seems to be suppressing your own obligation. Communicating with this will be a good practice for the rest of your marriage. You should express all of your concerns to your partner, and the two of you should have a fully transparent meeting with her parents. It's important to understand that even if her folks are fully financing the wedding, you and your partner have equal rights to review your guest lists and work together to add to your lists or winnow them down.
And that concludes today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 19th. I'm Dagna, your reader. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening. In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds, and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.